0: Well, uh, Rod Stark says in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, something very interesting. Something that's practical and relevant for us today. But before I get to that question, let me set it, what he says. He says, Jesus was a teacher and miracle worker who spent uh, nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings a dozen or so became his devoted followers. And when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably only numbered no more than several hundred. Here's his question, and this is going to be relevant for us. He says, How is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? Now, I want you to think about that question, especially as we think about today. In light of the current state of Christianity in the United States, in light of the direction our country seems to be rapidly heading, I think many would say away from any type of Christian values, in light of how much of the younger generations, Generation Y and Generation Z, are no longer interested in faith, I think it's one of the most important questions that you and I can ask and have a dialogue about. How, did it, how is it possible that this little Jewish sect transformed the world and become the largest religion in the world? It just doesn't seem possible. So what is it that you and I can learn from them and what they did and what happened and how can that affect our lives today? Let me give you the context and set it up for where we're headed, so we'll make sure we're on the same page. First of all, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit the last few weeks, so, so I'll, I'll make it a quick, quick kind of recap, but hopefully you know that the Jewish leaders, you know, they disliked Jesus, right? We could even say they hated Jesus, and, and he was pulling the crowds away from them and their influence on people's lives, and there came a final straw where they said, that's it. We're getting rid of Jesus. We're going to kill Jesus. And, and you might remember the event. We've talked about it. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, right? And at that point, they determined we're going to get rid of Jesus. He has too much influence on the crowd. So they have Jesus arrested. They beat him to an inch of his life, and then they have him crucified on a cross. He's buried in a tomb where he lay for three days. And then on the third day, on the day that we call, what do we call it? Easter, we celebrated that last week, Jesus rose from the dead. And by the way, it was a great Sunday last week uh, uh, as people came out and, and, and were here and we celebrated together. Then in Matthew 28, the Jewish leaders tell the guards who were who, who guarding the tomb that Jesus rose from, they tell the guards, we will pay you an incredible sum of money. They bribed them if you'll just make sure that you tell people that the disciples stole Jesus' body. Which is totally ironic because the disciples would never steal Jesus' body because they were, they were hiding, because they were afraid they were next. So that was never going to happen. So what do we have? We have a dead man who is raised back to life, and we have a religious establishment that's trying to cover up the truth. Then... Jesus sticks around for about 40 days or so before he goes back up to heaven, and he appears from time to time to different groups of people, to the different disciples. Um, in fact, one passage, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus appeared to many people, and one time he appeared to 500 people all at the same time. We know about these, uh, some of these appearances. For example, we remember, maybe some of you remember the story of Thomas, right? In fact, what was Thomas's first name? Doubting, Doubting, right? Yeah, yeah, you know the story. So Thomas originally doubts that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and, And he's like, listen, in John chapter 20, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'll not believe it. Well, a few weeks later, Thomas is with the other ten disciples because Judas is now gone. He, he hung himself. And so Thomas is now with them. They had seen Jesus, but Thomas wasn't with them. They're now all together. And in John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. And let's say this together. What does Jesus say to him? He says, stop what? Stop, doubting. Stop doubting and believe. And once Thomas... Got to that place of seeing Jesus. Jesus said, Stop doubting. He came to this place of belief and he said, My Lord and my God. The doubter became a believer. And so now it appears as we have 11 disciples who are all on board with Jesus. He has risen from the dead. They're on board. They're ready to move forward with Jesus. Or are they? I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to get to a familiar passage in a moment, but I want to start with a passage that I think oftentimes we overlook and we don't recognize uh, really the significance of it. Matthew 28, I'm going to start in verse 16, it says this, then the 11 disciples, again Judas is gone now, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17, when they saw him, Jesus, they worshiped him. But somewhat? Some Some doubted. Seriously? Uh, what's there to doubt at this point? Jesus said, "I'm going to die." He died. Jesus said, "I'm going to raise from the dead." He rose from the dead." Jesus appeared to them multiple times and multiple occasions. What in the world is is there for them to doubt at this point? I suspect. It has something to do with what Jesus said to them one evening while they were gathered together, locked in a room for fear that, you know, they were next, that they were going to die next. And Jesus appeared to them in John chapter 20, and Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am what? I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes into their life. They're empowered by God. I'm sending you. I'm sending you. Uh, Us? I doubt that's going to go well. I mean, we've been hiding out. Uh, you're sending us out. That, that means uh, we're going to probably be arrested like you were. I doubt I'm going to even survive if you send us out. I, I doubt I can accomplish this kingdom of God stuff that Jesus keeps talking about. I got a lot of doubts here, Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus is getting ready to start a worldwide movement to transform the world and his 11 closest followers, some of them doubted. Now, the question is, what does Jesus do with their doubts? I would even ask, what does he do with our doubts? Well, it seems in this passage that Jesus ignores the whole issue. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not really threatened or worried about your doubts. Your doubts don't automatically disqualify you. I can work with your doubts, and I want you to think about that today. We are going to have times when we doubt, where we question, and and sometimes we even feel bad for, for feeling that way. Listen, Jesus isn't threatened by your doubts. He's good. He can handle your doubts, and he can handle my doubts, and here's why. Jesus knew what he was about to tell them and what was about to happen in them and for them. He knew something they didn't know. And so he tells them. The next verse, Matthew 28, verse 18, then Jesus said to them, all, and and this is important, what does he say to them? All what? All, All authority in heaven and here on earth. That's important. Here on earth has been given to me. Jesus knew, he says, I know what's coming for you. I know that you are going to spread out from this tiny obscure obscure province in the corner of the Roman empire. And I know you're going to begin to go out and you will be my witnesses. You will share my, he knows that's coming for them. And he knew that they would go south to the great and to the great pyramids of, you know, Egypt that they'd head over to Alexandria that had the greatest library in the world at the time and that they would have to interact with the great intellectuals and sages of the time. Jesus knew that a man named Paul would eventually travel to Athens, which was really the cultural seat of the world at the time. And there in the land of Socrates and Aristotle, surrounded by the marble altars, And underneath the shadow of that mighty Acropolis, he knew that Paul would proclaim the good news of Jesus and he would call people to repentance. Jesus knew that his followers were to enter into the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was the center of the worship of the god or goddess Artemis. The, The temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. Jesus knew they would enter into that culture. Jesus knew that that entire city, its economy, its culture, its identity, everything was built around worshiping this pagan god, Artemis. Jesus knew these Christians would eventually go to the mighty city of Rome. Who would dare preach Jesus in that city? See, I think they're wondering, and I, want, I think we wonder from time to time, how in the world does the Christian message survive in that type of world? How in the world does the Christian message become relevant in these pagan cultures? How is it that the Christian message can, can make an impact on the world? How is it possible for the message of Jesus to affect and even change culture, (laughs) especially when some of the original believers are all doubting. How's this going to happen? And that's something I want us to begin to think about even for today. And I hope as we talk, as you try to parallel what we're talking about with today, because I'm wondering, how does Christianity survive in our culture today? You ever wondered that? How does Christianity be relevant today in our culture? Well, there's an answer. And the answer is simple. Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. He told us. He said, all what? All power in heaven on earth has been given to you and me? No. Jesus said, all power has been given to me. How much power is given to Jesus. All power. All power. All power on heaven, not just in heaven, because we're good with that. Jesus is going to go to heaven, and we're going to be there one day. We're good. No, no, no. All power is given to Jesus on heaven and on earth. So when the disciples enter the city of Alexandria, they don't need to fear And they need not doubt because there's no power in Alexandria greater than the power of Jesus Christ. They don't need to be intimidated because the glory in Athens is not greater than the glory of Jesus Christ. And when they head into Rome to the imperial seat of power, that power does not compare to the power of the one residing at the right hand of the throne of the Father. That incredible temple of Artemis pales in comparison to the temple of the living God. See, what does that mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? It means if we believe that all authority, that all power has been given to Jesus on earth and on, in heaven, it means you and I don't have to be intimidated. It means that you and I don't have to fear. It means our doubts can be dispelled. It means that any cause that exists is not greater than the cause of Jesus. See, the transformation of the world happens because of Jesus and who he is and what he possesses. All authority, all power. And this is pretty important because of what Jesus is about to tell his disciples next. It's really another way of saying what he said in John chapter 20. Look at Matthew chapter 28. It's a a verse that, that you might be real familiar with. Jesus says in verse 19, he tells these doubters, therefore, meaning, you know, in light of the fact that I have all authority, that I all have all power on heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And we've been watching that being lived out for 2,000 years. And last week was Easter, and us and millions of churches around the world celebrated. And and, and even here at LifePoint, in our last service, we had two people give their life to Christ and were baptized. That is still happening today. Disciples going and making disciples and baptizing. As John said, as Jesus said in John 20, I'm sending you. In other words, Jesus says, I want the world transformed and I want to use you, the doubters, to transform the world. But how is this possible? How exactly are 11 people that are to disciple all the nations, especially when some doubt, especially when they, you know they're going to be intimidated by the glories and the power and the moral values of their culture? Of course they're going to be intimidated. They were hiding, afraid they were next for the crucifixion. In other words, they must have thought the goal or the mission of Jesus can't be done. It's not possible. They must have thought if this movement, if Christianity is going to transform the world, it means an entire culture has to be changed. Entire industries have to be changed. Socioeconomic changes have to occur. Art and literature has to change. It means that, that, that topics surrounding me, uh, women and children and slaves, that whole mess that was occurring in the first century, they must have thought, that's insurmountable. I doubt that can be conquered. It's not possible to make disciples of all nations. I doubt it can happen. Now, to get into this, I hope you'll think of this question in a little deeper way, because the same is true today for us. And I want to ask you an honest question. You don't have to answer out loud, but do you believe or do you doubt that God can use you to change our culture? Again, on the surface, you say, oh yeah, absolutely. Praise God. I'm asking you down deep, do you really believe that God can use you to change our culture? If you're being genuinely honest, there's probably a part of you, maybe a big part, that says, I doubt it. Do you understand a little bit how the disciples were feeling now? When Jesus looked at, there's more than 11 here. He only looked at 11 and said, you're going to go, out, you need to go change Everything. So we're in the same place, just like the 11 disciples were thinking, if it's up to us, to to a bunch of doubters, to deliver this a message and change a culture and transform our world, if it's up to you and I to change our culture, I doubt it. Christianity's doomed. So the question is, is it up to us? Is it up to you and me? Is it up to those original disciples? Well, I think the Bible gives us an interesting answer. And I want you to see this here together. Is it up to us? What did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to who? Him. It's really not up to us. It's up to Him. It's up to Him and His power and His authority. What is that power, by the way? The Bible tells us very clearly, it's the gospel itself. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the what of God? The power power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You and I are going to be tempted to doubt the power of the gospel. You and I are gonna be tempted to undervalue and underestimate the gospel, and in Paul's terms, even be ashamed that somehow, way, the gospel message actually has the power to transform. And when you look deep into your heart and soul, there's been times where you've probably felt that. And there's been times where you've probably felt, it's up to me to make sure I share this correctly, share this accurately, don't mess this up. You've been there? You've had those thoughts and feelings? Jesus is letting us know the gospel is the power of God and the power of salvation. So how does that change people? It's not us. How does the gospel have the power to change people's lives? A familiar verse tells us, and it says this in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so judged the world. Oh, wait. Uh Uh-oh. Um... Hold on, I gotta redo my sermon because I was going a different re- For God so what? God so Love. loved the world. I really want you to think about this because this is critical for us today. It was for them and it is for us today. What leads somebody into a relationship with Jesus? Obviously the, the Holy Spirit working in their life. But what leads them into a relationship with, with, with God? Is it judgment? Is it you and I telling people all the ways that they don't measure up to the standards of Christianity? No way. I like what Ed Stetzer says. He's the dean and chair of missions at Wheaton College. He's also the executive director at the Billy Graham Center. And he said this. He said, culture war is not a term I like to use. In other words, you hear Christians talk about all the time, well, we're in this cultural war. We're in this war for our culture. He so says, it's not a term I like to use. Why? Because it's hard to war with a people and love them at the same time. I would highly encourage you to write that down. No, seriously, I, I, if you're not writing anything else, go write that down. Take a picture of it, email it to yourself. It's hard to war with a people and love them at the same time. He goes on and he says this, to accomplish the mission to which God is calling us, we need to stop contributing to the outrage and start engaging the outrage of others with the good news of Jesus. And then he says, if Christians concentrated on loving others, instead of expressing outrage at our differences with them, if we showed people mercy instead of condemnation, they would see Jesus in a different light. Then he says this, changing hearts is God's job. He said, ours is to share his truth boldly, but with incredible love and grace. Those who doubt Jesus, those who doubt Christianity, they will not be won over by our condemnation and judgment. Love is what conquers doubts. The good news of the gospel is that God so what? God so loved the world. I love how Paul said it in Romans 2. He said, don't you see? And he's talking to believers. He's saying, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? So let me just ask, answer Rod Stark's question. How did the tiny Jewish sect become the world's largest religion? We know the answer. Historically, we can look back. We know what the answer was. How did it change the world? It wasn't through judgment and condemnation. You know what the disciples did? Very simple. They served people. They blessed people. They prayed for people. In other words, they loved their culture. They loved people. And because they love people, God used them through the power of his gospel to transform the world. I think some of us, it's time for a heart check. I think some of us need to rethink our perspectives about those people who are far from God or those who aren't yet Jesus followers or to use a Bible word, those people who are lost. Let's stop warring with them and let's start loving them more with the gospel message. Can I maybe hear an amen for that one? Amen. God so loved the world, not so judged the world, he loved the world that he gave us his son to die for us so that we can live. That's the message of love, and that's the power of God, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. And what that just means practically for you and me is. We, it's God doing all the work. All authority has been given to God, to Jesus. So all we do is we share that love. We share our story of being changed by God. And we leave the results to Jesus. That's His responsibility. Our responsibility is just to be His witness. To share His love. Then Jesus says something that's pretty important to know. If you and I have been called to go make disciples of all the nations. And especially for these guys, there's only 11 of them in the beginning. Jesus makes it a across the board promise. If you're going to actively engage in his mission, he says in John 20, Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is like, listen, you got doubts. It doesn't matter. I'm with you. Your faith isn't super strong. I'm okay with that. I'm still with you. You wonder if my plan is going to work? Leave it to me and my power. No matter where you are, no matter who you go to, no matter who you share with, Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. If we rely on our authority and our power to, rather than relying on his authority and his power, we'll never transform the world. But if we rely on him and his authority and his power, watch what God does. So what happened to these cowardly doubters? What happened to them? Well, they came to understand that all authority was given to Jesus and not to them. They just go be his witness by loving others into the kingdom. And they get to the point, these cowardly doubters who are hiding in fear, we're going to talk about what happens over the next couple weeks. You're not going to want to miss the series and, and how their lives changed and transformed the world. Cowardly doubters transformed the world. And you see one example of that in Acts chapter 4, where the religious leaders had arrested the disciples, exactly why they doubted in the beginning. I doubt this is going to work out because we're going to get arrested. Lo and behold, they were arrested. And, and the religious leaders said, We want you to stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking, or you know things aren't going to go well for you." And Peter replied in John, Acts 4:19, "Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Cowardly doubters now standing up to the religious authorities who clearly took Jesus' life and in a sense, had a chance to take their lives. All their fear and all their doubt was put in its proper place. After the resurrection, Jesus said something to them. He says something to us today. He says, I have all authority. He says, I will go with you. And my message is the power of God. Not us. Not even our efforts. It's his message. And Jesus took that handful of doubters, cowardly doubters, and use them to transform the world through his power, not their own. And that's how the Christian movement started, with 11 men, cowardly doubters, who transformed an entire planet from 11 to over a couple billion today. Now, here's what I want us to think about as we leave today. I think about the young people today Do you? And the world they're growing up in right now, the culture they're growing up in right now breaks my heart. I think about Generation Z, for example, born between 1999 and 2015. They're the largest American generation yet. 34% of Generation Z Z considers themselves completely apathetic to faith. That's on top of the percentage who doesn't have an interest in faith. You have a whole third of them who are completely apathetic to it. They want nothing to do with it. I think about how 75 million Americans think faith is completely irrelevant in their lives. Our country in so many ways is moving towards the morality or the lack of at the time of the Roman Empire. And there was a time when people would say we're a Christian nation you need to understand we are not a Christian nation any longer. If you think we are, you just don't know the stats and the reality and the truth. The sooner we embrace the reality that we're not a Christian nation, the sooner we can get on mission. The sooner that we can, it'll affect our perspectives, the way we view other people. It'll affect our passion for Jesus's mission. We're not a Christian nation. Our nation desperately needs Jesus Christ. Our city needs Jesus Christ. Those people who live next door to you, that you're you're a part of teams together, or your kids are on teams, the students in the schools, they desperately need Jesus. So, what are we going to do about it? Are you going to take it upon yourself? I would say no. Because all authority has been given to who? He'll handle that part. Our part is to go love people, share that message, because that message is the power of God, not your ability to articulate, not your ability to to strategize and figure it out. You love people. You bless them. You pray for them. You serve them. For God so loved the world. We don't judge. We don't condemn. We love. And then you watch the power of the gospel work And then we will be able to look back a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade from now and go look at how God has been transforming Elk Grove. God's inviting you to join Him. God's inviting you to join a whole bunch of cowardly doubters and let God use you to transform the world through His power.